Welcome to the Campus Christian Fellowship Podcast for the University of Iowa, Iowa State University, and the University of Northern Iowa. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. 2 Corinthians 6, 14-7-1 Tonight, I'm going to speak about holiness and purity in God's people. And no, that's not code words for abstinence. I'm not here to beat you over the head one more time about leaving sex for marriage. I'm here to compel you over much more than that. My point tonight is to show that God means for his people to be pure, and his promises and his love for us empower us to be so. So let's go back to our text. Here, Paul is making an argument that Christians are to be pure, to be holy. Looking at verse 14, he says not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. We've all heard that before, how it means not to marry an unbeliever. And yes, it absolutely means that, but it also means much more. Yoking is not a word that you use commonly today, and you probably haven't ever used it unless you've spoken about the Bible or grew up on a farm. But what it refers to is being connected in labor. In the old days, when a farmer wanted to plow a field, he would yoke two of the same animal together to pull the plow. You can't yoke two different species together, such as an ox and a donkey, because they pull at different speeds and have different levels of strength. It would ruin what you are doing if you're trying to plow straight furrows, which is the point. The Bible actually even commands the people of Israel not to yoke different species together in Leviticus. Paul borrows that principle to show that Christians shouldn't be yoked with unbelievers because they are different species. There is something fundamentally different about them. Paul even outright told us this back in chapter 5, in verse 17, when he said that, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. There's a common misunderstanding among some people when it comes to being saved, where we have this mental picture of a person growing a little bit, a little bit, a little bit at a time until they pass like this certain line where they have enough belief or enough faith in order to be saved. 
And while it's a very common and easily understood picture, it's not a biblical one. The biblical picture is that we were once dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following the course of the world. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us together, alive together with Christ. It's from Ephesians 2. The old preachers called this the doctrine of regeneration. We were dead, utterly unable to do anything to save ourselves, hating God. But in his mercy, he brought us to life. We can see that in this passage. Look at the way that Paul contrasts the believer and the unbeliever. First, he says that the believer is righteousness and the unbeliever is lawlessness. Then light to darkness. Then Christ compared to Belial. Belial comes from an old Hebrew word meaning uselessness and corruption. It was a way that they referred to demons or specifically to Satan. Then the final contrast, the temple of God compared to idols. There is a complete difference between each of these. They are utterly incompatible. There is a complete difference between the believer and unbeliever. Sometimes people, saved people even, say things like, Oh, I'm just a sinner like the rest. I'm no better than anyone else, whether saved or unsaved. And in one sense, they are right. We're not going to be made perfect until God takes us out of this world. But in another sense, they have the wrong grasp of the relationship between a saint and his sin. So in Ezekiel 36, 22 through 28, God says that he is going to take his people and cleanse them and that they will be a sign to all people because of their holiness. So no, we're not made perfect when we're saved. And in fact, I would say that the longer you walk with Christ, the more you understand about how deeply sinful you are. But your nature is no longer enslaved to sin. When you are saved, there is a change in your life, and your life continues to change as you are sanctified because God has staked his honor on doing what he says he will do for his people. Our text in 2 Corinthians says that we are the temple of the living God. That is our current status in Christ, and God does not dwell in unholiness. So we're back to talking about the covenant here. Look in verse 16 of our text. I will be their God and they shall be my people. That is covenant language. When you are born again, you are brought into the people of God. Once you belong to a kingdom of darkness, now you belong to the kingdom of light. Do you see that? You now belong to God if you are in Christ. He purchased you. He paid for you. You were dead. Now you are alive. You were condemned. Now you are counted as the righteousness of God. Again, 2 Corinthians 5.21. 
So why am I pounding home on this? Because I am convinced that in the words of Paul Washer, the greatest need you have is to understand who you are in Christ and how much God truly, truly loves you. Paul is absolutely making the argument that Christians are to be pure and that they are to be serious about purity. But as the Reverend John Greer put it, it's an argument of grace. Now what does that mean? Paul is not threatening the Corinthians, beating them down with the wrath of God and the law. Look at his reasoning. In chapter 7, verse 1, he says, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. The reason Paul states for purity is that we have promises from God. So what are these promises? Look back at verses 16 through 18. I'm going to highlight three promises, and you could go through the biblical text and pull out so many more, but I'm going to focus on these three in this text. The first is that God promises to condescend to us. Now, we don't like the word condescension because in our modern connotation, it has this sense of kind of an ugly superiority, haughtiness, kind of a look down upon others sense. But in older English, it means only to come down from a higher position. And honestly, even if we do take into some of the connotation of superiority, he is God and we are not. God is not quantitatively bigger than us. He is qualitatively different from us. God is not a bigger version of humanity. He is not simply a great man. Because if a great man condescends to another person, it probably has a sense of pride. But when God condescends, of course he must condescend because he is qualitatively different from humanity. So God willingly descended to be among us in the flesh, in the person of Christ. You can see that in Philippians 2, 5 through 8. So he condescends to be among us and he promises to be among or in his people in the new covenant as well. Look in verse 16, I will make my dwelling among them. He has come to dwell. How incredible is that? But there's more than just that. He also, his second promise is that he promises communion. Continue on in verse 16, he says, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. God is not just dwelling among us like he dwelt in the temple. He also communes or has fellowship with us. He walks with us. And if you can't see why this is such a big deal, you need to know God better. What better promise can there be in the universe than that our perfect God, lovely in all of his attributes, incredible in his excellency and mind-blowing in all of his ways would dwell and walk among us. 
And I think the third promise that Paul highlights here might be the only one that goes beyond that. The third promise that Paul highlights, verse 18, And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. God has promised that he will be our father and will care for us. If you have grown up in church, you may be tempted to brush right past this language. You have heard this over and over again, and you don't stop to think about it anymore. But stop and listen. If you are in Christ, if you are born again, you have been adopted as a son or daughter of God. Jesus tells us in Matthew 6 that the Father cares for us even better than he cares for all of nature. In Romans, we learn that God works all things together for the good of his people. In Ephesians 1, we see that we have obtained an inheritance alongside Christ. God, the Lord Almighty is our Father. Let that sink in. Do you honestly believe these promises? In today's world, we run around like headless chickens trying to, quote-unquote, find ourselves. We try to figure out where we belong in the world and what our purpose is. If you've been exposed to Christianity, you might even cloak it in holy language. I'm just trying to determine God's will for my life. God has one purpose for you. Be holy. Be His. Stop trying to find yourself or determine your own identity. John Greer, who I quoted earlier, he puts it this way, The only way you will know who you are is to look at what God says about you. When you have in mind who you are and never forget it, that will affect how you behave. Do you believe this? Is your heart regenerate? Will you receive this message? Because if so, you will change. Your affections will change. Your desires will change. Romans 6.19 says that before we are born again, we presented our bodies as slaves to lawlessness. And that led to more lawlessness. Kind of a downward vicious cycle. Once saved, however, we present ourselves as slaves to righteousness, leading to more righteousness. Don't be confused. You never stand pat in life. You are either growing in righteousness or in lawlessness. What marks your life? Is your sin continuing to grow within you? Or do you see the fruit of the Spirit growing? And note this. Look back in chapter 7 verse 1. Paul says, Let us cleanse ourselves of every defilement of body and spirit. There is no dualism here. What your body does is evidence of what your heart is. Don't fool yourself and look at your life of constant, consistent sin and say, Oh, but my heart's given to God. I can't know your heart, and neither can you. Your life is the evidence of what's in your heart. Biblically speaking, the heart is not just the source of emotions, but the source of will and action also. Your heart is revealed by what you do. 
Proverbs 27.19 says, As in water, face reflects face, so the heart of man reflects the man. Maybe the NIV renders this a little more clearly when it says, As water reflects the face, so one's life reflects the heart. Remember, in Ezekiel 36, we saw that God takes out a dead heart of stone that hates him and loves sin and puts in a new heart, one that is alive and loves him, a heart of flesh. So do you see who you are yet? If you belong to Christ, you should be growing in love and devotion for him. As you understand his mercies more and more, as you understand his love more and more, you should grow in devotion to him. And I want to define his mercies for a second, because that's another word that we skim right over if we've been around the church. What are God's mercies to you? You draw breath today. You are alive. You have access to wealth that is unimaginable to so many people in this world. God's mercies to you are every good thing that you have ever and will ever experience. Those are God's mercies for you and his love for you. As you understand them more and more, you better be growing in devotion to him. Don't tell me that you love him and that you are devoted to him if you don't see that. So go tonight, read all of 1 John, then read the Gospels, then read the Prophets. Open all of scripture and see God's love. His purpose from all eternity to rescue a people for himself, from his wrath, for his glory. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, as it says in Romans 12.2. Look upon Calvary and see the ultimate expression of God's love in the face of Christ, who is wounded on our behalf. Christian, you who are saved... I'm going to turn this to application. Put away nonsense. Drop any defenses. What do you fill yourself with? What do you yoke yourself to? We live in a world today where I've been told that we have to have practical messages but not tell people how to live or what to do. But I will dare to compel you today. If you want to grow... If you want to stop withering on the vine and living a dry life, turn your eyes upon God. Lay aside secular music that turns your heart to evil thoughts, that makes you long for that which you cannot have. Lay aside sports and television. Throw out your computer if that's what it takes. Shut off your phone. Seek God in silence. Pray until you pray. Read the scripture and pray. Gather with believers in the church and worship God together. If you feel defensive about any of these, ask yourself why you are defensive. Am I wrong? Are you willing to tell me that if listening to sex-saturated, man-glorifying music turned your thoughts away from God and toward evil, that he would not tell you to lay it aside? Are you willing to tell me that if you have time for Netflix, but not reading your Bible, God wouldn't call you to cut it off? Are you willing to tell me that if your social media fills you with ungodly emotions, God wouldn't command you to put it out? 
If your sense of humor is crude and cruel, would God not command you to put it out? Are there things in your life that God is not allowed to touch? Because that's where your idols lie. I'm not going to command you on any of this. I'm not going to lay down fences or barriers so that you can legalistically assure yourself that you are within the boundaries of Christian behavior. I want you to honestly ask yourself, do you offer your whole life to God as a living sacrifice, as it says in in Thessalonians, for him to command as he pleases? Now you might say, You're taking all of the pleasure out of life, and God doesn't want that for me. You're right. God does not want to remove all the pleasure and all the fun from your life. But what I'm telling you is that he wants you to pursue the greatest pleasure worth having, and that is the presence and pleasure of God. Psalm 16 says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. In verse 5, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to shale, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's pleasure. That's joy. That's goodness. Paul's pretty blatant in our passage in chapter 6. He asks, what partnership, what fellowship, what accord, what portion, what agreement does a believer have with an unbeliever? None. Your life should not be ordered according to this world's direction. How you spend your time, how you spend your money, how you select a spouse, how you raise your children, what church you attend, how you work in your job— Everything should be ordered according to scripture and the will of God for holiness and purity in your life. In Ezekiel 36, remember, the holiness of God's people was the way that the nations see God's holiness. Unbelievers aren't going to read the Bible. And even if they do, they aren't going to understand it. Because remember back in chapters 3 and 4, the God of this world blinds them to the glory of God. There is an older saying that the only Bible most people read is Christians. And it's pretty true. When people look at you, do they see the holiness of God, the love of God, the joy of God when they look at you? Or do they just see another person who has a little religion in their life? And again, Don't take this and make it another chore, another burden. 
Look at the love of God for you. When you do so, filling yourself up on the worthless things of this world will become bitter to you. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2 that this is the motivation for growing into maturity as a Christian. That you have indeed tasted that the Lord is good. You cannot pick yourself up and make yourself love God anymore. Any more than I can will myself to love my wife more. You must look away from yourself from your own ability, and look upon the goodness and the excellence of God in Christ. Only then can you grow in love. Only then, uh, only as you grow in love, will you be purified and cleansed. In Philippians 2, 12 and 13, Paul commands the Philippians to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. That doesn't mean earn your salvation It means to work out the effect of the salvation that you have already received in Christ into every area of your life. You cannot separate verse 12 from verse 13, where it says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. God gives you the salvation, but you need to know how it affects your life. So as you pursue purity and love for God, he will do a work in you. And God's going to bring it to completion at the day of Christ. Listen, remember, I say that to Christians, to those who have been regenerated, those who are being saved. If you are not a Christian, if you do not trust in Christ for your salvation, if your life is not being molded into his image, I am begging you to change your course. Choose today whom you will serve. Paul says at the beginning of chapter 6 that now is the best moment to be saved. Now is the time of salvation. You don't have time to fritter away, floating between trusting God and trusting yourself. You don't have time to clean up your life before you come in. Trust in Christ and be saved. Then be baptized in water as the sign of the new covenant to show that you belong to the people of God. Then join with us as we walk in increasing purity, growing into the image of Christ. Father, I pray that this word is not without effect. That as I've opened up your your word in the Bible, that it has done your work. I pray that hearts would turn back to you and would rejoice in you and would glorify you, Lord. Amen. Hey, thanks for checking us out and spending some time with us this week. Quick reminder, if you're a student at Iowa State, University of Northern Iowa, or University of Iowa, we would love to connect you with a campus minister. So reach out to ccf.uiowa at gmail.com, and we will make sure we get you connected. Be sure to specify your school in an email. Additionally, if you have questions about anything you've heard today or anything that's on your mind, we would love a chance to answer that here anonymously. So you can also just drop a line there. Again, that is ccf.uiowa at gmail.com. We hope you have a great week, and please know that we are praying for you.